Dallas Willard is an author, was a scholar, was the chairman of the philosophy department at the University of Southern California. All right. His students, many of them didn't know that he was a Christian, and they begin to pick up on things he'd say, and they'd start to hint around, try to call out from him what he believed. And he'd start to pick up on, on their questioning, and he'd know what they were getting at. And he, more often than not, he would just simply say, you want to know why I follow Jesus, don't you? And they'd say, yes. And he'd say, well, who else did you have in mind? <laughs> I love that response. Even if you don't follow Jesus, even if you're not a believer, if you're watching this and, and you, know, you just think of Jesus as this grand historic figure, a powerful case can be made even if you're not a believer, that he was the most influential figure in human history. You know, the, the predominant belief among a lot of young people these days, as I mentioned last week, is that, that God is simply at a distance wanting us to feel good about ourselves and to behave. It's a very shallow view of God. When we, when we consider who Jesus is, we, we see something that both that we can understand and something that's deeper and beyond our understanding, something mysterious. When God shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up as, as a burning bush. So what should we expect if God became a person? What should we expect of God if he walked among us? Well, we should expect a burning bush. From the Word of God, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. Hear God's Word this morning. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, the Pharisees, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Let us pray. God, bless now this word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was young, my, my dad used to uh, diagnose us and walk away. I think he did it as kind of a joke. He'd say something like, oh, you're having a problem with that? Oh, well, that's a Morton's neuroma. And I'd be left thinking, is it fatal? Now, <laughs> he was very good, though, at, at putting the cookies on the bottom shelf. Very good at talking with his patients. As any good doctor is, not bringing the Latin terms and scaring them, but explaining something that might be very complex in a way that they can understand. Einstein says, unless you can explain something to a six-year-old, then you probably don't understand it yourself. How is it, how is it that God would reveal himself? How is it that we can know God both in the way that we can see him and have access to him, but also the God who meets us at our need that we cannot see. And the answer is 
he shows up. He shows up as the burning bush. He shows up as the lion and the lamb. He shows up as the Christ. He shows up as the divine and human king. Let's take a look at the way that Jesus comes into the world he so loved with both grace and truth. He comes to the world with truth. He comes to the world with grace. First, he comes into the world. He, he shows up in the world, not just, not just grace for Israel and truth for the rest of the world, not just forgiving Israel and condemning the rest of the world. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him, whoever should believe in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. God comes into the world. That's how we know him. That's how he reveals himself, both as lion as lamb, both as someone we can understand and somebody that meets us at a deeper point of need, not just the shallow symptoms, but the conditions. He comes into a world he so loves, not just for Israel, not just for the church, but for the whole world. How gracious is that? You know, a lot of times we want to think of God as just sort of separating out the sheep and the goats, and we want to think of ourselves as the sheep and the world as the goats. That's what was going on with the Pharisees, and Jesus was outing them. He was confronting that. He was confronting what, for us, is kind of a Star Wars theology. It's sort of like, we're the light side and they're the dark side. It's us and them. For all of us, there's always sort of this them that makes us feel better about ourselves. And we have this false separation. Whereas, you know, famously, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the dividing, light, the dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Well, Jesus is confronting that dividing line between good and evil in every human heart. He's showing the Pharisees that God would come for the world to redeem the world he so loved. Not just, not just a political figure of power to overpower the Romans. You see, this is what Jesus was confronting by his very, very savvy question. He asks them, he quotes Psalm 110. He says, you know, so, so here's this scene where we often see the Pharisees questioning Jesus and trying to trip him up. And more often than not, he comes back, he always comes back with an answer that is just incredible. Well, now he's turned the tables and he's asking them a question. He's quoting Psalm 110. He says, uh, what do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? You see, throughout the Old Testament, there's this figure that, that is said to be a descendant, a descendant of David, or in other words, a son of David, right? You don't know how many generations, but that the Messiah, that this this divine king, this priestly king, would come as a descendant or in the line of David. But was he only a human king? That's what he's trying to get at with the Pharisees. Whose son is he? And they say, well, he's just the son of David. They're just thinking of him as a, pol a, a political figure, potentially bringing external power that they can measure to overturn the occupying forces of the Romans. You see, they're thinking of him only in human terms, only in shallow terms, a distant God who wants us to feel good about ourselves and behave, right? And Jesus is saying, well, if that's true, why? In other words, if, if he's just David's son, why does David call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, he's quoting 
Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, sitting at someone's right hand, if, if the Lord is saying, sit at my right hand, he's saying, occupy the throne with me. Be on the platform. Have the, there's, a distinct, there's a distinguished person, and yet there is an equivocation with God himself. A divine king, not just a human king. So when, um, when Jesus, here's an example of how this perpetuates itself. We keep thinking of, of God as just coming with this, this, this power, right? To overrule us versus them rather than coming into the world to redeem something, to do something bigger and more mysterious than we can begin to imagine. And so here are the disciples in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane and the Roman forces are coming. This, this battalion is coming to, to take Jesus and Peter pulls out a sword and he lops off the ear of one of these Roman soldiers. What does Jesus do? Yeah. And, and the disciples are saying, hey, call down fire from heaven. They're thinking of him as just this prophet just this prophet who's going to operate in terms of the world's power. And, and, and they're saying, are you going to call down fire from heaven like Elijah? You think of Elijah on Mount Carmel from the Old Testament, and it's always us versus them, and Jesus heals that Roman's ear. You see what he's saying is? What's he saying there? He's saying, I've got a bigger purpose here. The dividing line between good and evil runs through every human heart. You know, so often we, we want to say them. We want to distance ourselves. I even see it sometimes um, in the Deep South. I see it, uh, the, the skepticism of anything that doesn't have to do with what we call the church. Even science. And we distance ourselves. And we say, well, we don't want to have any, anything to do with them, right? The, you know, and, and science. And we see this false separation between, between reason and faith. And then I want to ask, well, if, if you want to dismiss science as just them, do you take Advil? You see, how gracious is God that he lets the sun shine on all people, right? That he brings music to all people, that he, that he brings solutions to a broken world through broken vessels. That the dividing line between good and evil is so much deeper than we can appreciate. And so God shows up, not just as a worldly police priest, as a political force, not just as calling down fire from heaven even, operating in this realm, but as the Christ, the anointed one, this divine human priest, this lion lamb, this burning bush. So that's the first point, how God both reveals himself at the felt need level and the deeper need level. But second is this, he's a prophet, he's, that, he's the fulfillment of the prophet, he's the fulfillment of the priest, he's the fulfillment of the king. He's the fulfillment of the prophet, of the Old Testament prophets as Christ, but he's also a fulfillment of a priest, full of grace for the sake of truth. Full of grace for the sake of truth. Here's what I'm saying, he's the priest king. Now in the Old Testament you've got priests, and you've got kings. You've got those who rule, and you've got those who, um, who serve. And the priest represents the people before God. The king represents God before the people. Well, Jesus does both. And as, as full of truth as a priest, he's the kingly priest. 
In other words, he fulfills by grace all truth. Are you following me? That's the point. He fulfills all grace by truth. In other words, he brings justice so that we may have grace. Now, a lot of times we, th we think of the word justice or truth and we think, well, that's for them, like we talked about a minute ago. And sometimes we think, you know what, I just, I don't really even like the idea of justice. Doesn't the Bible say do not judge, right? I, I, I have a hard time believing in a God of justice. I mean, I, I want to think of God as just a God of love. You hear people say that, right? Well, well let's imagine that, that you're in that conversation with that person and you said to that person, well, what if 9-11 happened in your town? Or what if it happened in Thomasville and half the people you knew and loved were killed in 9-11? And what if the government showed up and just said, you know what, we're just going to let this slide? Would you believe in justice then? You see, we fool ourselves. We lie to ourselves. We know on a deeper level that there needs to be some kind of justice. We know. And so often we want to put ourselves as an us in an us and them kind of situation. And we wonder, how is it that God can be both fully judge and fully loving? Let's take a look at this. Imagine now that you're at a store and the clerk uh, rings up all your items except one and charges you and you realize, oh, it's still there and failed to ring it up. And this clerk, you know, was just, just hired last week and he kind of winks at you and says, you know what, we're just going to let this slide. There's no justice in that. that. And that's not even grace. It's really just permission. It's really just sin. You see, if there's no justice, then there can be no grace. Any kind of letting things slide is really corrupt. Now, let's look at it this way. Imagine that the same scenario, and he forgets one item, and the store owner comes out, the one who owns all the items in the store. And now he says, we're going to let it go. Not let it slide. I'm going to let it go. Why? Because the owner is the one who's paying the cost. You see, there is a cost. There is a cost of justice. And so when... When Jesus, as the, the kingly priest, comes before God on our behalf, the priest goes before God on our behalf, on behalf of the people, goes into the, the Holy of Holies. When the, when the kingly priest goes before God on our behalf, he fulfills all justice, you see? As the kingly priest, as the divine king, as the one who set the law, as the one who says not one jot, not one tittle will pass away from the law, Jesus had the authority as the kingly priest to bear the cost of sin on himself. And so, so you can see that in verse 44 when it says, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies at your feet, what's he doing? What's he saying? It's like I quoted Lincoln a couple months ago. Don't I make... Don't I destroy my enemies by making them my friends? See, Jesus is dealing with his enemies by making us his friends. He's dealing with the cost. If, if there's a judgment and there's a justice exacted out of Jesus, he's not going to bring it out of us. And so when he represents us before God, he does so not just as a lamb, but as the lion lamb. So... Jesus fulfills, he brings to us this, this accessible God, this burning bush, a bush but a burning bush as the Christ, the fulfillment of all prophecy. 
but he's also the, the kingly priest who represents us before God. But he's also the, the, the priestly king. He's a king who has a priest-like quality to him. He represents God before us. He represents truth before us through grace. So by justice, he brings grace. By grace, he brings truth. Are you seeing it? By justice, he's able to extend grace to us as the kingly priest. As the priestly king, he's able to bring truth to us by grace. Not just to rule over us, not just to overpower us, not just to crush us with his will, but to woo us as a priestly king, as one who cares for us, as one who serves with all power. Through grace, he's able to bring us truth. Let me explain that a little further with this story. When I was first starting out in ministry, I was interviewing at my first church, one of the church I ended up going to, but it was a church in Lynchburg, Virginia, and I was on the plane, and, um, and a woman next to me said, where are you going? I said, well, I'm going to a job interview. She said, where are you going to interview? I said, well, I'm going to interview at a church. She said, oh, Lynchburg, church, Falwell country. And she turned away from me and didn't talk to me the rest of the flight. Now, what was going on there? Now, I'm not, I'm not here just to beat up on the Falwells. I know there are Falwell families in the news again. But we have to understand, what are the roots of this? What's going on here? I, I remember back in the 90s, I would watch, uh, in the late 90s, I wa- would watch uh, Crossfire. And, and a lot of times, Jerry Falwell Sr., he's now deceased, Jerry Falwell Sr., who was part of the moral majority along with um, James Dobson, Uh, I began to see a a very uh, ugly tone. And I began to see someone who was much more about power and mainly about truth for its own sake. And not for the sake of serving, but for the sake of ruling, for the sake of power. And that is what I think people are reacting to, even today. When, When the church or when Christian leaders are saying that they're about freedom, American freedom, but they're really about power, then we're missing the gospel. We're missing something in it. You see, Jesus came as a priestly king, not just as a king to rule, to crush our will, not just to, to, uh, to make sure that the culture doesn't slide away because we've got more power than them, but to compel us, to woo us. Imagine that woman understanding the gospel understanding that Jesus and that, that, that ministry and that the church really is here to serve, that we use whatever power we have for your benefit, then they're representing the priestly king. Now, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at the way that, that by grace, God gets truth into our lives. How does he do that? How does the priestly king, for the sake of truth, on the basis of grace, bring truth into our lives. Let me explain it this way. There's a theory in sociology called the looking glass self. In other words, it's, it's, it's the theory of the mirror. And it says this. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. You become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. I've noticed that's true. As a parent, I notice that's true. What do you think of your children? How do they, how do they perceive? What do they think you think they are? 
Philip Yancey puts it this way in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He's, he asks this question. He says, how would my life change if I truly believed the Bible's outstanding words about God's love for me? If I looked in the mirror and saw what God sees of me, how would my life change? Yes, he sees us as more sinful than we ever dare imagine, but more loved than we ever dare dream. Romans 8.34 puts it this way. Paul in Romans 8.34 says this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. See, that's quoting Psalm 110 again. Who indeed is what? Ruling us? Crushing us? Overpowering us with his will? No. Interceding for us. Interceding. See, he's the priestly king. He's a lion and a lamb. He uses his power not to crush, but to serve. You see, the symptoms are there, but the condition is deeper. The, the, the bush is on fire. The Christ is, is both a man and divine. I want to close by reading to you my favorite poem by William Blake. And it brings home this idea, this mysterious power that, that makes God both accessible, his love both comprehensible. You can explain it to a six-year-old and yet robed in mystery that reaches to the depth of human need, not just felt need, but our greatest point of need. William Blake writes this, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? And when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Let's pray. God, you are the lion and the lamb, and we pray in these closing moments that you would find us at the place, the deepest point of our need. Not just the felt needs that we came to have met, the need for community, the need for encouragement, the need to be challenged, the need to be called up, but God, the deeper needs that we cannot see. God, thank you for meeting us, for coming into the world you so loved, for coming as our priest king, the one who fulfills all righteousness and extends to us, even us, a grace that reaches to the depths, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.